Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. Stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go down and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. For 21 work. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams, he's still coming down with this thing, just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount Especially at first, an enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be talking about this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I'm going to talk about two home invasions in Sydney in 2002 where one person was killed. The following police investigation and subsequent trial was a tad strange. Oh, intriguing. What about you, Hufflepuff? Hufflepuff? What? Come on, that's a low blow. Yeah, it's well, at least it's not Slytherin. Oh, and what do you think you are? I'm, I'm Gryffindor all the way, baby. Okay, good to know. Should I say what what I'll be talking about, or should we just talk more about this? I don't know. Harry Potter's pretty interesting. (laughs) What have you got for us, Tara? This week, I looked into a vile pig of a man who trotted his way into women's lives through lonely hearts letters that were made of lies. Once under his spell, he not only robbed them of everything they had, but sometimes murdered them and their children. This case inspired the book and Robert Mitchum movie Night of the Hunter, which film noir fans will be well aware of. I like that film. Yeah, you got to have love and hate tattooed on your knuckles. Yeah, that's um, Shelley Winters and Lillian Gish. That's true. The guy I'm talking about uh, wasn't a preacher like Robert Mitchum's character, nor did he have love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. Uh, but it was like loosely based on the case. But he did resemble a pig. Oh, he definitely resembled a pig. Robert <laughs> Mitchum doesn't. Now, we received an email this week, which uh, really struck a chord with us. So, Tara, last week I talked about the senseless murder of Adriana Donato uh, at the hands of her ex-boyfriend, James Stoneham. Now, we received an email this week uh, from Adriana's mother. Yeah. And so I'm just going to read it out because it's pretty self-explanatory. 
Hi, I accidentally came across your latest podcast and I'm glad I did. I'm Adriana's mum, Grace Donato. Your podcast was very accurate and relays my thoughts. Why didn't anyone tell her? Adriana was a caring person and James would call her often and tell her he was about to kill himself. She tried to help him, but in the end, he killed her. He put her through emotional turmoil. She was just too good to him and paid the ultimate price for it. Unfortunately, there are too many senseless murders and we need to talk about it constantly in hope of stopping it one day. We need to teach our society on how to cope when relationships break up. Rejection is a part of life. Whether it be a relationship, job interview or university placement, we need to teach people about resilience. I think about Adriana every day and I miss her terribly. Thanks for talking about her. Wow. Look, Grace raises some really important points. Thanks for writing to us, Grace. Yeah, thank you so much. And we're so sorry for what happened to Adriana. Yes, but Grace does raise some good points about men not dealing with their frustrations. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite an issue here and, and just the fact that it can it can cost lives. That's the no. big problem. Mm. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right, Tara, I believe it's time for you to tell me a story. Herman Drenth, a.k.a. Cornelius O. Pearson, a.k.a. Joe Gildor, a.k.a. Harry Powers, a.k.a. A.W. Weaver, a.k.a. Scumbag Pigman, was born in 1892 in the Netherlands. Scumbag Pigman. That's an interesting name. Well, he had so many names for himself, I figured he wouldn't mind too much if I just chucked an extra one in there. Yeah, okay. He and his family immigrated to the United States in 1910, living at first in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, then moving to West Virginia. Life is unfair, and it's unusual for somebody's looks to truly express their personality, but in this case, they do. Herman was a sadistic predator and a short, fat, homely man who's been described as squat, pig-eyed and paunchy. <laughs> He's so horrible. Seriously, trust me. Oh, really? Uh-huh. There wasn't much information available about his childhood since he was born in a Dutch-speaking country, but I'd hazard a guess that at least one of his parents was an evil pig. Really? Really. Being a soulless, heinous pig man didn't seem to hinder Herman's luck with the ladies. In 1927, he moved to Clarksburg, West Virginia, and under the alias Harry Powers, married Luella Struther after responding to her Lonely Hearts ad. Luella owned a farm and grocery store and wasn't particularly lucky in love. Her first husband, who she divorced in 1914, was also a murderer, but he was acquitted after he claimed he did it in self-defence. Luella lived above the neighbourhood grocery store she owned with her unmarried sister. Once Harry Powers moved in, he insisted they change the shop's name to Powers Grocery, even though he didn't even own 1% of it. Well, that's a bit shit. Yes, yes, he was a man of his time. Herman was a vacuum cleaner salesman by trade and not a very good one. So he sucked at being a vacuum cleaner salesman? To see what I did there? I did. Get out? I'll just grab my coat. Oh, can I leave too? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of us has got to stay. Really? Why? There's stories to get out. Oh, okay, but I'm not finished, so I can't go. Herman's less than successful career was subsidised by taking lonely women for all they were worth. 
Now, long before there was Tinder or Grinder or online dating sites, there were matrimonial bureaus. These organisations were known mostly as Lonely Hearts Clubs, and they flourished in the USA even during the Great Depression. One such organisation was Detroit's American Friendship Society, where, for an annual fee, members got a listing of matches, mostly widows and widowers, along with a description of their most alluring features, which may have been exaggerated or entirely made up. So there were no photos, they just say tall, handsome man or something Well, they like would that. do that. And then if you're corresponding with someone, you can uh, get them to send you photos after that. With a lovely beard. Oh, no, you used to have a beard. Now you have no beard. I have You're no beard. Barney nude face over Barney, there. bold face Barney's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yum, yum. Though now married, Herman still took out his own Lonely Hearts ads, but under different names. Oh, Dirty Pigman's a dirty step out. He is. His American Friendships listing in 1931 was under the name Cornelius O. Pearson, and it had no trouble attracting the ladies. Well, Cornelius is a pretty mm, sexy name. Yummy. <laughs> oh, no. I actually hate, I hate that yummy thing, but apparently I do it now. Add it uh. to the list. His listing said, wealthy widower and civil engineer worth $150,000, own a beautiful 10-room brick home, completely furnished with everything that would make a good woman happy. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money, would have nothing to do but enjoy herself. Well, that sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds like a sweet life. Yeah. If this was happening nowadays, his profile would probably just say DTF and he'd be sending women dick pics whether they wanted them or not. What's DTF mean? Down to fuck. Um, It would have been uh, (laughs) really time-consuming and expensive for him to actually post out dick pics to all the ladies back then, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, just to get the photo taken, he'd have to have his tackle out and he'd have to like not well, move for ages. Don't wobble it no. because it'll come out blurry. Yeah. Maybe it would be better to sketch it. You could sketch it. But also getting it developed would be um, quite expensive, I would think. Well, you'd have to sketch it over and over again too. Oh, you can't so just photocopy it. You'd end up it. just doing a cartoon of it really, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Many ladies wrote in response to his ad. In fact, at times he was receiving 10 to 20 letters per day. I wonder if he said good sense of humour. G-S-O-H. It's like that's always in a dating profile, isn't it? It is these days. I'm not sure if sense of humour was like as necessary back then compared to, you know, lots of money. What if you had a bad sense of humour? Would you put that up? Because, yeah, I've got a pretty bad sense of (laughs) (laughs) humour. One of the women who fell for these pretty lies was 50-year-old Asta Aisha, an amateur artist and professional silversmith who lived in Parkridge, Illinois. She'd run a design business with her husband, Henry, but he'd died of cancer several years earlier. Originally from Denmark, Asta was raising her three children, 14-year-old Greta, 12-year-old Harry and 9-year-old Annabelle alone, except for a terrier named Judy, as she had no family or close friends in the area. Their dog, Duty, had been adopted by the Aishas after his first family were killed in a tornado. Wow. Lucky he wasn't carried off as well. Yeah, absolutely. To help support her family, Asta rented rooms in her house to bring in money, but was in a rather dire financial situation, which must have made the pig man's declarations of love and financial support even more attractive. In his letters to Asta, Herman seemed like a romantic widower looking for true love who only resorted to placing an ad in Lonely Hearts magazines, 
Because his successful career as an engineer kept him busy on projects around the country. Oh, man, about town. Out and about? Out and about, badly selling vacuum cleaners. In one letter, he wrote to Asta, Women are the sweetest, purest and most precious part of the human race. They sing the melody of human life. Any man who has experienced a mother's affection or a wife's self-sacrificing love knows that this is true. Those are some words. Ah, there's more. I would have opened with, hey, baby. Yeah, you would have. Yeah. Another of his letters said, I'm trying to find the one that can make a home a paradise, a haven of content where loved ones await and to whom I can look forward with pleasure and anticipation. And in yet another one, he said, The great trouble is that men are so ignorant that they do not know that women must be caressed. Ah, swoon. I know, dreamy, right? I know it's bullshit, but it's still more enticing than an example of the modern-day Lothario that Casey posted in our Facebook group the other day. It was just a stream of messages from this one dude, no responses, uh, and it went like this. Hi, beautiful. Send some meow pic if you're there. Virgin pic? <laughs> you, you are my pussycat doll. Please send booby pic. Bloody slut hole father fuck, send naked pick now. I ask many times. Please send it. Dying from cancer. One last wish to see your boob, then I take off life support so can die in peace. Okay, I did now. Fuck you, bitch. Bye. Never contact me again. I mean, which would you prefer, Barney? I think the uh, the previous, I, yes. I believe. He only has to see one boob. You know the repair. Oh, well, maybe one's enough. Yeah, I guess. I, but I bet if you showed him one, he'd want to see the other, and yeah. then maybe a vagine pick. <laughs> Some meow pick, perhaps. Oh, oh, no. The fact that Asta had three kids didn't deter the pig man. He seemed to relish the role of father figure, cooing about pictures of her children that she'd sent to him and bestowing the nickname of Buster on her son, Harry, saying, I am indeed very proud of Buster. He looks like a splendid young chap, and the two girls will have the opportunities that they deserve. Well, he obviously hasn't seen that Phil Collins film, Buster. Oh, um, Arrested Development. Oh, yeah, that's another <laughs> Buster. After several months of correspondence, they finally decided it was time to meet face-to-face, -face, and the man Aston knew as Pearson made arrangements to visit her and her kids in Park Ridge, Illinois. Aston must have been pretty disappointed when Cornelius O. Pearson's porcine presence darkened her doorstep early in the summer of 1931. That's a hell of a sentence. Yes, it is. 39-year-old Pearson looked nothing like Aston expected for a man who had described himself as tall, fit and handsome, with a full head of hair and human-looking eyes. Is that how he described himself? Well, you I know, have human-looking <laughs> eyes. <laughs> well, he didn't say, I have piggy little watery little pig eyes and I'm the well, worst. So she was expecting a human to knock on her door. Yes, and instead she got a bad pig man. Yet a pig trotter rang her bell. But she must have got over it pretty quickly as the same month she asked William O'Boyle, a boarder in her house, to find another place to live. She said that her new love interest intended to move in. He will need a trough. Oh, yes, but he might find truffles on the property and that'd be nice. Oh, underneath old trees. That's it. After Herman departed on June 27th, Asta left the children with a babysitter and the next day headed east for a business trip. Five days later, the babysitter received a letter from Asta saying that she'd be staying in the east indefinitely and that Mr Pearson would be coming over to pick up the children. 
When Herman came for the children, he sent Greta to the bank with a letter allegedly signed by Asta, instructing the teller to fill in the amount of Asta's bank balance for withdrawal. The clerk refused as he said that the signatures didn't match. And also, Greta's, what, about 10? She's 14. Oh, she's 14. Well, there you go. Oh, they used to, you know, kids used to get sent down the shops with a note. I remember being like 13 and being sent to the bottle shop for my mum with a note. Oh, yeah, I used to get cigarettes with yeah. my father yeah. Yeah, with a note. <laughs> kids. They used to do that sort of stuff and people used to let them. Yeah. When Herman couldn't get the money, he quickly ushered Asta's children into his car. The babysitter asked him to wait so she could pack some clothes for the kids, but he told her that he'd buy them all new ones. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The Aisha family was never seen alive again, and because of their lack of family or close relationships, it, it took a while for anyone to notice. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. On August 26, former boarder Charles O'Boyle went back to the Aisha's house to pick up some tools that he'd left behind. O'Boyle, who had rented rooms from Asta for two years, had moved out but remained greatly attached to the family on account of their being such well-bred children. So he was really fond of um, Greta, Harry and Annabelle as well. Mm, well-bred children, hey? No one's, ever, no one's ever described my children like that. <laughs> <laughs> No. Well, I don't know. Maybe just not to you. Incessant little bastards is usually what they're, <laughs> how they're described. No, not really. Asta and her children were gone, but the man O'Boyle knew as Pearson was there and he was taking everything from the house. O'Boyle called the police, who asked Pearson about the missing family and looked around the property. He said that Asta and her children had moved to Colorado and had instructed him to settle their affairs. He showed them a letter that seemed to be in Asta's handwriting, saying he was there to clean up the house to prepare it for renters. But when he couldn't give any specific details on the whereabouts of the family, police decided to investigate further. Mm, Suspicious. Very suspicious. And they found 27 love letters to Asta from Cornelius O. Pearson, postmarked from Clarksburg. They didn't have enough to hold him, though, so they let him go. But that evening, officials in Park Ridge, Illinois, contacted Clarksburg police about the missing family. The letters led them to a post box, which eventually led to the farm where the man who called himself Pearson lived, under the name Harry Powers, with his wife of four years, Luella. The police staked out the Quincy Street property, waiting for Powers to appear. When he returned home on August 27th, he was placed under arrest for murder in the disappearance of Asta and her children, despite the lack of solid evidence or the bodies of the missing people. In his pockets, police found five letters addressed to five different women. Hmm. Pigman Powers told police conflicting stories that inflamed their suspicions, so detectives kept investigating. They learned that two months earlier, Powers had built a garage on a property in Quietdale that his wife owned about a mile away from their house. Quietdale. Yeah, that's what it's called. Sounds like a nice place. It does. Mm. It's not. It's not. Not anymore. No. On the morning of August 28th, police escorted Powers to the newly built garage on the property and discovered blood-stained clothing and jewellery. They also found a trapdoor to a concealed basement underneath it. The basement had been divided into four cramped soundproof cells with heavy wooden doors with locks on them. Oh, this is getting really creepy. It's so creepy. There was virtually no light or ventilation in the cells, and the only furnishings were bare, filthy mattresses on the cement floors. In addition to the personal belongings, police also noticed a noose tied to a rafter above the trapdoor. Ugh. 
The same day, police began excavating the property. They dug up four corpses, which turned out to be the bodies of Asta and her three children, Greta, Harry and Annabelle. They were wrapped in burlap sacks and buried in a shallow grave. Their hands had been bound with rope that matched the noose in the garage. If that's the pig man's idea of how women need to be caressed, I think I'll go with one of the less caressing guys, yeah? Send the vagine pick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a day later, they found the body of another woman. She would later be identified as 50-year-old Dorothy Lemka, a divorcee from Northborough, Massachusetts. Dorothy had also gone missing in July after she withdrew $2,000 from her account and went off with her male-order fiancé, Cornelius Pearson. Digging around the farm produced no more bodies, but there was a very strong suspicion that Powers had killed before. Asked at one point how many people he'd murdered, he shrugged and said, I don't know. So he didn't say no, he just said, I don't know, like he'd lost count. Yes. Yeah. Autopsy reports showed that the women and children had been starved and tortured before being killed in the death dungeon. Well, this gets worse, doesn't it? It's still going to get worse than this. Inside the Powers' home, there was a trunkload of correspondence from more than 100 women from all over the country. Letters and photos found in the trunk revealed that the pig man had been operating as a love racketeer for over a decade. I'd normally like that title, love racketeer. No. But in, in this instance, no. It's not good. It's not a compliment. No, it's not. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, Herman said he didn't know anything about nothing and said someone else must have done it. Yeah, mm. likely story. No. After a brutal eight-hour interrogation by police, where they beat him, flogged him with a rubber hose, hit him with a ball-peen hammer, burned him with cigarettes, broke his arm and stuffed hot-boiled eggs into his armpits, Herman finally confessed to the five murders. Have you heard of that egg thing before? I haven't. Uh, it's standard police procedure. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Must have somehow, I must have not been at school that day. Yeah. Um, there's actually pictures of him after this. And oh, it's, really? I mean, it's cold comfort, but, you know. Yeah. After promising marriage, he'd driven Aster to the murder farm. He said, I placed Mrs. Aisha under a hypnotic spell. She had submitted without resistance or outcries to my beating, and she wrote a letter authorising me to take charge of her three children. Asta would have been completely taken by surprise when he turned on her and must have been in a terrible state to have written that letter. Oh, absolutely. Put her under a spell. That's, <sighs> what a lot of bullshit. He's so full of himself. Yeah. But, I mean, it's bad enough just going around torturing and beating and, and murdering women and children, but to instill this hope in them and seduce them over such a long period of time with the promise of a better life and build this trust and apparent love to them and, and then do this? That's very cruel, isn't it? That is so cruel. Once the kids had arrived, he locked them up for a few days, then took them to a room where he'd suspended a noose from the rafters. One by one, they were hanged. He said, I was permitting little Harry Aisha to watch the killing of his mother and the others, but in the middle of it, he let out an awful scream. I was afraid the neighbours would hear it, so I picked up a hammer and let him have it. The horror these poor children and their mother had to endure is unthinkable. It really is. About Dorothy Lemke's murder, he said, I took Mrs. Lemke to the garage at midnight and led her into the cellar. I told her to keep quiet and directed her to stand up. I gazed into her eyes and held her spellbound. 
I told her I was her master and she would have to obey my orders. She closed her eyes and whispered that she was my slave and stood waiting my commands. Then I beat her with all of my strength. I beat her until she was a mass of bruises. Still, she had no will of her own and did not cry out. Poor Dorothy too, like, holy hell. I'm sure she did cry out, but uh, oh. yeah, I don't believe anything this guy says. Oh, no, he's hypnotizing all the ladies with his watery little piggy eyes. That's what yeah. he's doing, apparently. I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying the, the bits where he talks himself up. I'm buying the other stuff. After forcing Dorothy to sign several checks made out to him, he promised her that he would release her. He said, blindfolded and hands tied behind her back, I told her to rise. As she got to her feet, I drew a thin rope from my pocket, tied it around her neck and strangled her. After his arrest, other women came forward with stories of how Herman had wooed them. Some were fortunate enough to have only been robbed of their life savings and left alive. Some he had on the back burner at the time were shocked to learn the man who'd been so ardently wooing them had evil intentions, including a Detroit woman named Edith Simpson. Edith said that she'd already bought her wedding dress and was making arrangements to leave with him. When shown a letter that he'd written to Asta, Edith was amazed to see that it was almost exactly the same as one that he'd sent to her. She told detectives, He wrote so beautifully in his letters. His mind was so big and fine. I can't believe he'd hurt an insect. Well, you better believe it, Edith, because he certainly did. Using fingerprints and photographs, the investigation revealed that Herman had been in prison for burglary under his birth name in Wisconsin in 1921, and again a few years later in Indiana for defrauding a widow of several thousand dollars. It was so much easier to fake your own identity back then. It sure. really was. No photo ID. Yeah. Just had to have the papers. Yeah. Mm. Although not charged, Herman was suspected of involvement in the 1928 disappearance of Dudley C. Wade, a carpet sweeper salesman who he'd worked with, and also the unsolved murder of a Jane Doe in Morris, Illinois. Well, you don't want any carpet sweeper salesmen when you're selling vacuum cleaners. No, That's the competition. It absolutely is. No, those things bloody don't work anyway. No, I don't think so. <laughs> On September 20th, 1931, a lynch mob attempted to take Herman from the prison, but they were eventually dispersed with fire hoses, tear gas, and the threat of boiled eggs in their armpits. I told you, yes. that's normal police procedure. It is. Yeah, they dropped their torches and pitchforks and, and at the threat of boiled eggs in their armpits <laughs> yeah. and, and went home. They did. They were like, oh, I'm not eating eggs again for a while. Herman was then moved to Moundsville State Penitentiary. The prosecution figured that surely a man who would kill widows and children the way Herman did was insane, or at least would try for an insanity plea. A respected forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Edwin H. Myers examined Herman for several hours and concluded that he was legally sane, knew right from wrong, but was possessed of an exaggerated lust to kill that dominates his entire personality. Mm, and he may be half human and half pig. Yeah, somewhat pig. Bad pig, though, not good pig. Not good pig. Not like that. Not like, like Babe. Not like Babe. Mm -mm. Due to the public's fascination with the trial, which started on December 7th, 1931, it was moved from a courtroom to the 1,200-seat opera house in Clarksburg. Herman did not sing and seemed unconcerned throughout the trial, chewing gum and yawning. After deliberating for under two hours in the opera house dressing room, the jury found him guilty. The penalty was death by hanging. Well, that's ironic, isn't it? Mm, it is. The irony is ironic. 
March 18, 1932 was the day Powers was to be executed at the gallows at Moundsville State Penitentiary. And the town had taken on a festive atmosphere mm, as people days. had flocked there to celebrate the occasion. Happy days. Yeah. When asked if he had any last words, Herman, the porcine love machine who had written thousands of amorous words to seduce women from all over the country, had nothing to say. No. Oink. Oink. <laughs> After the trapdoor opened and he plunged down, Herman Drenth struggled at the end of the rope for 11 full minutes before he was declared dead. Well, that's good. Tara, I have a question. What about Judy the dog? What ah, happened to him? Well, Judy, the Aisha family's pet terrier, was featured in newspapers across the country as a dog twice bereft, who for the second time in his short life was the lone survivor of a family wiped out by tragedy. Oh, right. Yeah, which is true. A courageous neighbour of the Aishas adopted Duty, and nothing terrible happened to their family. Well, I heard he opened up a franchise of wine bars across the West Coast. Yeah, wine the, and cigars. Wine and cigars are quite successful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the family that adopted him became really rich, and they didn't have to work again, and they were all very happy. And, and the dog missed his families, but he was pretty successful. And Call of Duty, that's about that dog. Yeah. Those, that series of games. It definitely is. Oh, but um, what a horrible pig man, right? What a horrible pig man to I, win people's trust and betray them in that way. That was obviously part of his sick, twisted game. And he also liked to torture people, starving those kids and watching, them, watching them their, and, oh. their mother die in front of them. It's just awful. And doing that whole, I'm your master, I'm going to oh. hypnotise you with my little piggy eyes. I, th I think boiled uh, eggs under the armpits is uh, too good for him. I think it is too. No. Oh. What's the time, naked face Barney? Well, I'll tell you, Tara. It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? Why do you always ask me that? Are you? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. Now, we've got a cracker this week. We do. Someone took the, the, the option A and recorded their voice, and it's awesome. So thank you to Joel Martin, who sent in a review of Peter Fitzsimons' Batavia. It's a cracker of a story too, Tara. Yes. It's, it's got ships and, and shipwrecked people and... Murder. And lots mur and lots of murder. Murder and cannibalism, and it's, it's, it's great historical. Yep. Let's let Joel tell us all about it. Do it, Joel. As true crime nerds, we love facts. We like to have that repertoire of handy facts available about the worst murders, those with the most victims, or those that have changed our society forever. One of my favourite Aussie authors, Peter Fitzsimons, in my opinion, has given you nerds all this and more with his historical drama, Batavia. He's also reminded us that history is told by the winners, and our Aussie colonisation timeline might just need a tweak, possibly by a couple of centuries. Described by author Peter Fitzsimons as a true adults-only version of Lord of the Flies, meeting Nightmare on Elm Street, the story is set in 1629 when the pride of the Dutch East India Company, the Batavia, is on its maiden voyage en route from Amsterdam to the Dutch East Indies, or now known as Indonesia, laden down with the greatest treasure to leave Holland, which, by the way, was never recovered. But all is now 
not sweet on board. Uh, a mutinous plot is being planned when it strikes an unseen reef in the middle of the night. In fact, Fitzsimmons claims that the mutineers actually caused the wreck themselves by extinguishing their own navigation lamps. Genius. While Commander Francisco Pulsart decides to take the longboat across 2,000 miles of open sea, so this is where current-day Perth or Geraldton is, straight up north up to Indonesia, his second-in-command, or a.k.a. Captain Mutineer Scumbag, Geronius Cornelius takes over, quickly deciding that 250 people on a small island is far too many people for their supplies to feed. Not unlike a modern-day episode of Survivor, this nautical narcissist forms an alliance with 40 or so fellow castaways to hatch a scheme to save themselves. The plan? Kill everybody else. Well, almost everyone. They make allowances for a dozen or so women to remain, including the highly sought-after hottie Lucretia Jans. A reign of terror begins, counted only by a previous anonymous soldier, Webby Hayes, and a group of other soldiers who begin to gather him to those that are prepared to do what it takes to survive. This story has it all. For the true tr crime nerds, it has a lot of firsts and significant historical moments. Over 130 people died, which is not insignificant. It also led to the construction of the first European structure to be built on Aussie soil. This wasn't a church or a house or a hut. It was a timber gallows used to hang the offenders. Its impact also lives on. Some of the offenders were simply dumped off the WA coast a good 200 years before the region was colonised. This was reg regarded as pretty brutal punishment. But did they die, as expected? The Nandar indigenous people in the region still tell tales of their ancestors, rescuing stranded Dutch mariners who eventually married into their tribe. Descendants to this day have blue or green eyes, paler skin, and sometimes speak words sounding very similar to the Dutch spoken at the time. I love this story, not just the book, but the story, because it actually challenges the Aussie narrative of colonisation by a good 200 years. Fitzsimons is sometimes uh, criticised by historical purists by writing historical fact from the point of view of the characters involved. And he does that in this case. He makes assumptions about what they are feeling, thinking, saying and doing. And given that this was 400 years ago, there aren't the records to, to say otherwise. If you can accept that there's more than a fair whack of creative licence taken, this type of historical storytelling creates incredible characters far more than the bland repetition of dates and facts found in traditional history books. I give it five out of five stranded seafarers. Thanks for that, Joel. I'm yeah, oh, was it Joel or was it Mr Casefile? Oh, mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Joel is Mr Casefile. Maybe he I is. I don't know. I'm going to look that book up. I've actually, um, I love that story. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Huh? Hmm. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
So, Beardless Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. By the way, Tara, the beard is coming back. <laughs> you just realised what you looked like and went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> it did not please me. Well, I'm surprised you didn't just take it down to a moustache or some, like, uh, Civil War mutton shops or something. Well, there comes a time when you really need to start fresh, till the soil. Oh, did you we, um, put some fresh. blood and bone on it? Put Maybe some, blood some and bone. manure? Manure? <laughs> uh, yeah, I write yeah, shit face. I write shit on my face, Tara. Doesn't surprise me at all. All right. 53-year-old Joseph Legozo lived with his wife, Mary Ann, and two of their adult children in a two-storey house in Cecil Hills, southwest of Sydney. Shortly after midnight in the early morning of January 7, 2002, Joseph and Marianne returned home after having a night out. Marianne parked their car in the driveway, then they walked towards the front door of their house. As Marianne was looking for the front door key, she heard voices. She turned around and saw two men with guns in their hands. One of the men was armed with a rifle and the other man was armed with a pistol. Both of the men were dressed head to toe in dark clothing and their faces were covered by balaclavas. Each man was wearing large goggles, like if ninjas went skiing. Oh, right, okay. Let's call them Pistol Man and Rifle Man. Okay. Because of the shit they've got in their hands. That's what I figured. Otherwise it'd be like Ski Ninja 1 and Ski Ninja 2. Yeah, that's too confusing. Yeah, a little bit. Pistol Man said, Do as we say and no one will get hurt. He also asked if there was anyone inside the house and Marianne, probably seeking to protect her children who were inside, replied that there was only her husband and herself. Joseph and Marianne were told to go inside the house. They were followed by the two men. Rifleman walked towards a stairway leading to the second story of the house. Marianne then revealed to the intruders that, that two of her sons were asleep upstairs. She implored the men to tell her husband and herself what they wanted and that they would give them anything. She added, just leave my children alone. How terrifying, right? Yeah. That invasion is like a massive nightmare. Rifleman walked some distance up the stairs and then came running back down. He expressed fears that the people upstairs were probably already phoning the police. He then ran back up the stairs. Rifleman entered a bedroom in which Joseph and Marianne's 22-year-old son, Robert, was asleep. Rifleman woke Robert, threatened him with his rifle and told him to get out of bed and leave the bedroom. Leary-eyed Robert got out of bed and walked down the stairs to the lounge room. He was told by Pistol Man to lie down on the floor. Robert complied. Rifleman then entered a bedroom in which Joseph and Marianne's other son, 24-year-old Julian, and his fiancée, Natalie Kermy, were asleep. Rifleman woke them up. Whilst threatening with his rifle, he told them to get out of bed and to go downstairs too. They were asked to lay face down on the floor of the lounge room behind Robert. Rifleman said to Joseph Legozo, You come with me and show me what you've got. Joseph and Rifleman started walking up the stairs. On the stairs, a physical struggle occurred between Rifleman and Joseph. Both men fell down the stairs, wrestling with each other. In falling, Joseph struck a coffee table in the lounge room near the stairs. Pistol Man pointed and discharged his pistol. The bullet hit Joseph Legozo and passed through the wall of his chest and part of his lung. Marianne ran towards her husband. Pistolman discharged the pistol a second time. A bullet struck Marianne, entering and then exiting the joint of her right thumb. After the two shots had been fired, both intruders ran out of the house. No property was stolen. Oh, so what was the point of all of that, huh? That's right. Joseph Legozo was taken to Liverpool Hospital but was pronounced dead at 2.59am on January 7th, 
2002. Oh, man. That's appalling. He was just trying to come home from a night out. Yeah, in your own home, it's just yeah. terrifying. You wouldn't be able to sleep at night, would you? Oh, no. <sighs> Ten days later, on the evening of January 17th, another attack occurred. Michael Cress, his wife Beverly, their 16-year-old son Jonathan, 17-year-old daughter Alison and her boyfriend Ramsey Tammer were at their home in West Hoxton, west of Sydney. At about 11.30pm, Michael Cress opened his garage door and stood in the doorway smoking a durry. That's a cigarette. As he stood there, a white model Ford Laser stopped on the street directly opposite his driveway. The Ford Laser sedan had been stolen the night before from Bankstown. A man carrying a pistol ran up the driveway from the vehicle and said, Get in quick. Don't shout. If you shout, I'll shoot you. When he means getting quick, he means the garage. Yeah. Two more men ran up behind the first. Both were armed, one with a rifle and one with a knife. Michael said they were all dressed in dark clothing and balaclavas and two were wearing ski goggles. It's the same ski ninjas. Let's call them pistol man, rifle man and knife man. It's all very... Uh very imaginative, those names. Thank you. <laughs> the three men forced Michael into the garage and into his home by way of an internal doorway. As they did so, Pistol Man placed the weapon against Michael's right temple and said, Don't look back. Don't look at me. Don't look at anybody. Beverly Cress was standing at the internal doorway. Pistol Man said to her, Go inside, be quiet, and no one will get hurt. Once inside the house, Pistol Man told Michael to lie down on the floor face first and put his hands behind his back. Michael did as he was told. Beverly remained standing, nervously watching the other two men, Rifle Man and Knife Man. Knife Man had black plastic cable ties in his hands and a light silver grey coloured sports bag. Pistol Man asked Beverly if there was anyone else in the house. She replied, my children and my daughter's boyfriend. Pistol Man told her to go up and get them. Beverly walked up the stairs, followed by Pistol Man and Knife Man. Rifle Man remained behind, guarding Michael Cress. Beverly went to her daughter Alison's bedroom and told her and her boyfriend Ramsey to come downstairs and do as they were told. Alison and Ramsey were made to lie face down on the floor. Beverly then went into the bathroom where her son Jonathan was having a shower and told him to come downstairs. Pistol Man stood behind Beverly with the gun pointed at her as she did so. Jonathan dressed and was forced downstairs to the same area. He was made to lie on the floor. Pistol Man asked, where's the money? If you do what we say, no one will get hurt. Beverly took all the money she had out of her bag and handed it to him. Beverly was then made to lie face down on the floor. Everyone was told to remove their jewellery. Afterwards, their hands were bound behind their backs with the black plastic cable ties. As this was happening, Knife Man was searching the upstairs area of the house. The men stole mobile phones, jewellery, a watch, wallets and bottles of spirits from the family. Really? They stole their booze? They stole their booze. Really? Because I thought they were professionals until now. Well, they left the light beer behind. Yeah, but And like, the mid-strength. What are they, teenagers? They actually are. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, so that was a clue. Oh, damn, I've given away too much. Knife Man then produced a roll of silver duct tape. He cut numerous pieces off with his knife and stuck them to the stairs. Each of the occupants then had a piece of tape placed over their mouth. Pistol Man told the victims to keep their heads on the ground for another 10 minutes and not to call the police, otherwise they would come back and kill them. 
Then all three men hightailed it out of the house. A short time later, Michael Crest was able to free himself and call the police. He made fast work of those cable ties, huh? He did. Good on him. Good on him. On January 18th, the 1984 white GL Ford Laser was recovered from where it had been abandoned on Old Cow Pasture Road in West Hoxton. The cows were interviewed but claimed to have seen nothing. Moo. Moo. Due to some brilliant police work, the cops deduced the two home invasions might have been committed by the same perpetrators. Ah, so there aren't just a whole bunch of, like, ski ninjas going around breaking into people's houses, being horrible and killing people. Well, Tara, on each occasion, an assault rifle and a silver handgun were used. Also, on each occasion, the intruders were disguised in ninjas-go-skiing outfits. And on each occasion, they were complete bastards. A month later, on February 16th, police officers executing a search warrant at a property in Canley Vale on an unrelated matter found a fishing licence in the name of Michael Cress and a watch owned by Alison Cress, which had been stolen during the Cress home invasion. Why the hell would they steal a fishing licence? <laughs> well, they wanted to go fishing and not pay the, what, $10, well, $30? Well, they wanted to fish legally, obviously, Tara. Right, well, I mean, the law's very important to them when it comes to fishing. Well, yeah. They also discovered black cable ties similar to those used to restrain the Cress family and a balaclava. At that time, Sophia M and a friend of his, Mayo Van, were living on the premises. Hang on, so there's a guy called Sophia in this story? Yeah, it's spelled S-O-P-H-E-A-R. Okay, so it's not Sophia. just like, you know, he's like an Italian woman. No. Okay. During the search, Sophia M was asked, who is Michael Cress? He replied, might be a friend of ours. I don't think so. And I just borrowed his fishing license. Yeah, I don't think that guy likes you at all. 19-year-old Sophia M was born in Southeast Asia to Cambodian parents on June 2, 1982. Sophia came to Australia with his family when he was three years old. He had a criminal history, Tara, but it consisted entirely of driving offences, such as driving with a low-range prescribed concentration of alcohol and driving while his license was suspended. Okay, so nothing violent. No. On February 22, Sophia was interviewed by police officers in relation to the two home invasions. After being cautioned, he answered over 270 questions and was declared the winner of Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, right, okay. My favourite colour's blue. And then he was released. Ah, so I guess the questions were pretty innocuous then, huh? They must have been. Do you like gnocchi? No. (laughs) (laughs) Are you wearing underpants? Yes. A few weeks later, the police discovered that SIM cards registered in the name of two people living at Unit 1, 119 Chester Hill Road, Bass Hill, had been used in a mobile phone stolen during the Crest home invasion. Unit 1, 119 Chester Hill Road was the new address of Sophia M. Ah, Sophia did it. Mm, Maybe. I thought you were just talking about him randomly for no reason. So police officers executed a search warrant on April 24 at that address. In Sophie M's bedroom, the police found a carry bag containing, amongst other things, black clothing, a balaclava, ski goggles, cable ties, two pairs of gloves, a roll of grey duct tape, a sheathed knife, and a pair of skis. Mm, did they really find skis? No, skis weren't there. All right. But it really, really would have put him in it if the skis were there. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> he admitted that he owned these items. 
His housemate, Arnardu, that's, that's a Push real name. Push pineapple, shake the tree. Don't make fun of someone else. That's racist. Yeah, probably. I give up. His housemate, Arnardu, was arrested in relation to a firearm found in the search. Leanne Tran, another housemate, was taken to the police station for questioning about the use of her SIM card in a mobile phone stolen during the Crest home invasion. So you can't just steal a phone, take the SIM card out and put yours in it. It well, doesn't work can, like that. Well, you can, but they could still find you. They will find you. You should just do that if you're going around stealing people's stuff anyway. Just don't steal and shit. Get, and get, get done for it. Or just don't steal it in the first yeah. place. That's another good idea, actually. You're a thinker, aren't you? You're a scholar and a gentleman and a lover of what? bad poetry. I am a man of all seasons. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them winter. <laughs> Following the cert... <laughs> <clears throat> Why does my voice keep going up? Because um, you're a cunt. <laughs> oh, thanks. Constructive criticism, that's all I ask from you. And that's what I get. Following the search of the premises, Sophia was arrested. He was taken to Bankstown Police Station and was questioned by Detective Senior Constable Bradley Abdi and Detective Senior Constable Michael McLean. Detective Abney gave Sophia the following caution. I want you to know that you don't have to say or do anything unless you wish, as anything you say may be recorded and later given in evidence at court. He was also told that the interview would be recorded on a video and audio machine. Sophia said, I'm not going to say anything to you if you turn that on. I don't want to look like a dickhead. Detective Abney said, I can turn the audio tapes on and leave the video off if you want. Sophia replied, no, nothing. Detective Abney said, what about we write down what you say? Sophia said, no. Detective Abney said, Mick and I are going to ask you some questions anyway and it's up to you what you say. He also added, well, Sophia, what's it going to be? Are you going to talk to us or not? Sophia M said, no, not if it's on the tapes. Detective McLean said, There, I've turned it off. Even our phones are off. As he said this, he turned the machine off. Sophia M said, What about a wire like in the movies? Detective Abney said, I'm not going to sit here naked with you, mate. You'll just, have to tr- <laughs> You'll just have to trust us. We have been up front with you from this morning and we haven't tried to trick you. The detectives then questioned Sophia for some time about the Cress home invasion and elicited admissions including his possession of a silver pistol used in the attack. Detective McLean asked, Why did you pick that house anyway? Sophia replied, They just looked rich. Nice house. They had a Commodore in the driveway. Oh, he's, not, he's not a Mensa think tank, is he? Well, Sophia refused to name the co-offenders, after which the detectives left the room. On their return, they questioned Sophia about the Legozo home invasion. Detective Abney proposed turning the machine on, but Sophia began to cry. Really? Little bitch. Maybe he just hates the tears. sound of his voice. <laughs> <laughs> I know I hate the sound of somebody's voice. Oh, it's, no, it's mine. It's so all right. So funny. But Sophia began to cry, little bitch tears. Because <laughs> he, he hated the sound of his voice. Yes. He asked to speak to a solicitor and he was given an opportunity to do so. After Sophia returned to the interview room, Detective Abdi said, what is it going to be, mate? How about I just put the tapes on and you tell us whatever you want? Sophia said, no. Detective Abney said, what are you afraid of? Sophia said, I told you. I don't want to look like a dickhead. Too late. Detective Abney said, I told you before. I can leave the video out if you want. Sophia said, no tapes. 
Detective McLean said, We can record the conversation in our notebook and get you to sign it if you are happy with what has been written. Sophia said, No, I don't want to sign anything or have anything written down. Oh, he's a nightmare, isn't he? <sighs> Detective Abney said, Sophia, we can't sit here all day. We are giving you the chance to tell us your side of the story. If you don't, all we have is the statements from the other people in the house. If it was an accident, tell us. If you didn't shoot him, tell us that. Sophia said, I just don't want to talk about it now. I've, I have too much going on in my head. I want to say what happened in court. That's not how it works. Soon after, Sophia M. was released from custody. The detectives prepared a record of what had been said based only on their recollections. It was set out as a word-for-word record, but Detective Abney agreed it was unlikely that word-for-word accuracy had been achieved. The officers did not believe it would be admissible in court, Tara. Yeah, there would be a danger of that. In early May 2002, warrants were issued authorising Detectives Abney and McLean to each wear a covert listening device transmitter and recorder for the purpose of recording conversations with Sophia M. Ah, they're getting around it, huh? They are going to trick him. On May 13, the detectives shaved their chests, got wired up and attempted to speak to Sophia at his residence but he was not at home. Oh, that's a waste of a chest shave. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Itchy chested. <laughs> itchy chested detectives Abney and McLean were again wired for sound on May 15th and they managed to catch Sophia at home. Detective Abney said they wanted to show him some photographs and talk to him for five or ten minutes and that they were not going to the police station. He got in their car with them. Detective Abney said, Mate, we're just going to go and have a talk to you. I think there's a park or something up here. We're not going to take you to the police station or anything. So you know you're not under arrest, okay? Remember we said we might come back and show you some photos of some guns? Whilst driving to the park, Detective Abney reminded Sophia of his visit to the police station on April 24. Remember they gave you a piece of paper and said that you didn't have to say anything to the police? Yeah, I know that. And the same goes again. You don't have to say anything to the police if you don't want to, okay? But the detectives did not then, or at any other stage, say that anything Sophia M. said might be recorded and given in evidence. Sophia replied with, So what do you want to know? We want to know what you said when you did the home invasion at Hoxton Park. Do you remember that, mate? I'm struggling to remember. I'm struggling to remember what you said. You said you picked the, uh, why did you pick that house out? Sophia replied with, I don't want to talk about that anymore. The detective showed Sophia photographs of guns. In the course of the conversation, Sophia said, the one that was used at the shooting was an SK. He had earlier denied knowing anything about the Lagozo home invasion. During the conversation, the detectives repeatedly assured Sophia that he was not being tricked. Detective Abney said, mate, we didn't even take you to the police station. It's not hard. I mean, we spoke to you once before and you wanted to talk to us. We're not trying to trick you or anything. A little later, Sophia said, I know how you guys work. You try to con us. To which Detective Abney said, I'm not trying to, mate. I'm not trying to con you. We told you before. In the course of the conversation, Sophia initially denied involvement in the Lagozo home invasion. Detective Abney then said, Maybe you might feel better if you tell us. It's not as though we're going to slap the handcuffs on you and take you away. Otherwise, we'd be at the police station, wouldn't we? After considering this, Sophia gave a detailed account of his arrival at the Lagozo residence, the struggle, the shootings, 
and the departure. Then Detective McLean said, Mate, you're under arrest. <laughs> now, of course, Tara, the way the evidence was gathered would possibly later bite Detectives Abney and McLean on the arse and would probably be cause for a mistrial and possibly a later appeal. Mm. Yes, it was. Ju- <laughs> uh, thank you for answering for me. Judge Shaw made an order rejecting evidence of the conversation at the park. He held that the evidence was inadmissible on the grounds that it was obtained Im- improperly and was unfairly prejudicial. In 2004, a second trial took place before another judge, Judge James. That trial led to Sophia M's convictions. Oh, we like Judge James. Judge James stated, I believe the police behaved properly in all of the circumstances. I accept the submission of the Crown Prosecutor that the police, in honest belief, in pursuit of evidence relating to a serious and tragic crime, behaved in a way which was understandable. In giving evidence at the trial, Sophia M. testified about the circumstances in which he participated in the Cress offences. He said that after travelling to the vicinity of the Cress home in a car with some friends, not knowing where he was going and what was going to happen, that he had got in the car in his underwear. (laughs) That the clothing he had worn during the robberies had been provided to him in the car by his friends and that in the carrying out of the robberies, he had merely done what he had been told to do. But they found the balaclavas and goggles and all the kinds of things in his possession, right? Yeah, he's not going to do well here because well, he's, he's trying to... He's, uh, you don't try... Yeah, he's he's bullshitting. He really is. And, and really, he's backtracking. And really badly. Yeah, not well. We appreciate it when it's done well. At the trial, the jury were directed that they could find Sophia M. guilty of the murder of Joseph Legozo, even if it could not be proved he was either pistol man or rifle man, as both intruders were disguised as skiing ninjas. Constructive murder, formerly known as a felony murder in Australia, implicated him either way. The jury were also directed that they could find Sophia guilty on the other counts in the indictment in accordance with the principles of joint criminal enterprise and common purpose, without necessarily having to be satisfied that it was him and not the other offenders who had pointed the rifle or pistol at Joseph or Marianne Lagozo. All in all, Tara, Sophia M got some serious prison time, totaling 36 years with a non-parole period of 27 years. The earliest day in which he will be eligible for release on parole will be the 19th of May, 2029. So was he pistol man or rifle man or knife man? Well, he did have the pistol. Oh, so he's pistol man. But there was some discrepancies in the witnesses' uh, statements because... Well, a lot of them had just been woken up and some of them were surprised and they had to lie on the floor. I mean, apart from them having disguises on, they were different heights. Yeah. But... uh, they contradicted each other on who was the tallest and who was the shortest yeah. and who was the fattest and that kind of thing. <laughs> so that didn't really help. But in the end, it didn't matter because of the constructive murder charge. So you know? did they get the others, the accomplices? They did. And they, okay, they got similar sentences. Yeah, because, I mean, oh, not only was it just ill thought out and ridiculous, but they actually killed somebody. And they, they really terrorised two families. Oh, they really did. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, the whole investigation is, is, is quite farcical, but really what you should take away from this is the, those families being traumatised. Oh, mm. well, of course, and that the police did what they needed to to get the information they needed to lock these people they up. They did. Detectives are allowed to lie to suspects. Oh, totally. To elicit a confession. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I like that. I like that too. Mm. So I think it might be time for that thing we call Aussie as. What is that again? 
Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. I'm assuming that you might like to hear one. I would, Tara. Excellent. Should I bust it out? Bust it out. Heroes often don't wear pants. And Aussie legend Jimmy Howard, probably nicknamed Jimbo, is no different. Oh, Jimbo. Pantless Jimbo. Jimbo went pantless and proud in an attempt to remove a 1.5 metre saltwater crocodile from a popular Darwin beach. Oh, wow. Jimbo described how he lassoed the salty before removing his red man panties and putting them over its eyes in an effort to calm the beast down. He said, Oh, I just ripped my jocks off. Soaked them in the water and wrapped them around its face. It was a bit cranky, and that was the only thing I could use to cover up its eyes. I'm probably the only one in the world who can say they went commando for a croc. <laughs> I'm just lucky it wasn't a bull. It would have arced up a bit at the sight of red jocks. 35-year-old Jimbo almost stood on the croc as it lay in a shallow pool of water at Cashmarina Beach. My jocks would have been brown. Yeah, well, certainly the back half. Yeah. He said, I was walking along at low tide and noticed a small outline in the water and thought it was a stingray. I was standing about a metre from its tail, so I quickly backstepped and grabbed a stick, which I then poked at it to make sure it was alive. He was only a little fella, so he probably got a bit tired in the rough tides or something. All I know is he had good little teeth on him and I think he would have taken a good chunk or two out of it if he had the chance. (laughs) Jimbo said he removed the croc as it was worried it might attack a kid or a dog if they ran near it. He said, oh, there was enough water there for him to stay there until the tide came back in, but that beach is used quite heavily in the afternoon with families and people walking their dogs. I called a friend and he came with rope and helped me catch it while we waited for Parks and Wildlife to arrive. The salty was moved along to the Nunama Crocodile Farm in rural Darwin. When asked if he was going to wear his croc-calming jocks again, Jimbo quipped, Oh, I don't know. I'll have to give him a good wash. They might be lucky for me, eh? I'll have to put them on and go to the casino. You never know. I could win a bit. (laughs) Well done, Jimbo. You're already a winner in our eyes, yeah, Jimbo. Yeah, you're a hero, a local hero. Very much yeah. so. Don't ever wear pants again, Jimbo. You got this. So before we go, we'd just like to take a second to thank people who gave us a, a nice review this week. And by people, I mean person. So thank you so much, extra, extra large historian from the USA. That's very kind of you. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice. I know. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And again, we just did some bloody murder. We do it every week. Oh, yeah. Pretty much. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. All the things. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and some sweet merchandise, including the Bloody Murder range of perfumes. Oh, yes. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So if you were going to write a lonely heart, Column ad, what would you be like, you know, putting forward? 
Well, I'd open with Hey Baby. Hey Baby. Hey Baby. Bunny is a man of all seasons. I think about myself in the third person. Yeah, well, you, would, you should. I mean, it yeah. makes you sound more credible. I know I don't have a beard right now, but I can grow a glass. Yeah, although, like, they don't know if you have a beard or not. You could be like, my beard is for con. My beard is ripe and juicy. Just word? for you, baby. What was that? You, word fecund. You? you freak out every time I say fecund. It's like you've never heard it before. I don't know. I sound like for your cunt. Well, I mean, you could mention that too if you're into it. I'm not into it. Oh, you just love They had They had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997 show me the pick. <laughs> show me boob pick. Uh, i'm dying i'll show you one last no one last wish show me your boob <laughs> maybe that's what i should do instead of sending dick pics sing moob pics oh just one though just, just one. one keep them wanting more right well i do have a favorite yeah <laughs> we all have a favorite barney <laughs> you're left, not alone my left boob is better than my right boob i really enjoyed daniel day lewis in the movie about your left boob <laughs> He was great. I think he won an Academy Award for it. I think he did. I think he won 12. <laughs> Rightly. So he played your boob so well. Yeah. Meryl Streep played my other boob. Well, you know, she's very good. But that was a made-for-TV movie. Oh, she would never do that. It wasn't Meryl Streep. It was a lookalike. Well, you got foiled, No way. It friend. was, man. It was a great role. That's nah, why. That's why she did a made-for-TV nah. movie. Hey, this was in the 70s. Uh, really? Is that all you've got to say? It's the best thing you've said all fucking day, by the way. Most intelligent thing you've said. Oh, you're going to keep doing it. I'll, I'll send you a picture of my boob. <laughs> Father fucking cunt, I ask you many times. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations. That kind of plopped out of my mouth. <laughs> Like, like that fart that you can't like, do. Like, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. You shut up. Yeah, we'll both shut up. That's a good podcast oh, recording right day, then. isn't That's it? That's it. All I'm, right. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. <laughs> Me too. That's our All new right. podcasting experience. All right. <sighs> yeah, the look of disgust just brought me so much pleasure. Yeah, I think that's what you're in it for. I really yeah. do. I really do. I really do like to make you feel uncomfortable. Well, you're very good at it. Thank you. So I've got to read some fucking shit now, don't yeah, I? Yeah, like 95 fucking pages of it. Way to write a long story living. You hate reading so much. Why do you write such long stories, huh? Well, the story goes where it goes. I need, it needs its beginning and a middle and an end. And that's what I I want to flesh the story out and tell give all the I'm details. I'm so bored. <laughs> <laughs> These stories are important to me. They're my children. <sighs> well, I have children. These are better than my children. <laughs> well, they're more well-bred, aren't they? Well, more well-bred. I should do a whole podcast in falsetto sometime. What do you oh, think? I'm going to do one down here. I'll do it up here. Yeah, that sounds hey, like a great podcast. Hey, you can pretend to be Barney and I can pretend to be oh, Tara. Oh, my name's Barney fucking Black. Oh, my yeah. name's Tara Sarabin and I suck ass. <laughs> oh, my name's Barney. I can swear as much as I want. No one calls me on it because I'm a white guy. I, I can't say cunt at all now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can just do what I want. No one cares. <laughs> 
That was my impersonation of oh, how the world sees big you. Oh, big something Christmas pudding. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. no. Uh, yum, yum, pig's bum Christmas pudding. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.